0: I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Thank you for joining me. Today I'm here with Rabbi Melvin Glazer. Mel has been the rabbi of Temple Shalom in Colorado Springs, Colorado, since July 2007. A 1974 ordainee of the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City, he received his Doctor of Ministry with a concentration in Death and Mourning from Princeton Theological Seminary in 1995 and his Doctor of Divinity degree in 2001. He served congregations in the United States, Canada, and South Africa. He is the author of When Death Visits a Jewish Home, 99 Actions for Mourners, and And God Created Hope Finding Your Way Through Grief with Lessons from Early Biblical Stories. His latest book, and we'll be talking about this today, is A GPS for Grief and Healing, published this year. In addition, he's contributed articles and chapters on grief and mourning to numerous publications. He has been a member of the board of Kavad V. Nikum, an international organization which supports the creation of local groups which care for the dead and their families. He has participated in their conferences and has led sessions on the double silence in and out of Tahara. He's also led bereavement groups and enjoys helping people move from mourning, as in grief, to mourning, as in the beginning of the day. Find out more about Mel at www.griefok.com. Welcome, Mel. Thanks. It's so good to be here. I'm excited, and I I particularly enjoy that I'm interviewing a rabbi on Christmas Eve. It couldn't be better, as far as I'm concerned.
3: I think it's hilarious.
0: (laughs) It's great. You know, I've been thinking a lot about holidays, uh, the way in which... Uh, A lot of the winter holidays, solstice, Hanukkah, Christmas, are about darkness with the light coming in. Um, I think they, they all come from a similar experience. Do you agree?
3: I agree. They all come from a pagan Saturnalia, which celebrated that solstice.
0: Yes, and it makes sense to me that people stuck in the dark, as people used to be, would want a little bit of candlelight at this time.
3: I guess that's what grief and loss and healing are all about.
0: I guess so. I guess so. That's, that's, uh, that leads us right in, doesn't it? So it does. you, you've been at this grief work for a long time, and it sounds like your education, right from the start, was centered on preparing yourself to work with loss. How did that Uh, come about for you? How did you decide both to be a rabbi and to work with grief and loss?
3: Well, thanks for asking my grandmother, a very pious, orthodox Jewish woman uh, in Atlanta, where I was born and raised, told me that I was going to be a rabbi. She told me. Mm -hmm. When your grandmother, your bubby tells you you're going to be a rabbi, that's it. Yes, ma'am. That's right. Okay. And she um, taught me a lot, and then I went to uh, religious school as as a kid. I went six hours a week in addition to public school, and I excelled, and I loved it, and I became my rabbi's favorite the son he never had. So he spent some time with me, and I went to Jewish summer camps, spent 20 summers away, and uh, one thing led to another, and I, I felt at home in the Jewish tradition. So that's sort of on one foot, as we like to say, how I became a rabbi, how I became a grief guy, is that my daddy died two days before I turned 12 years old, and I couldn't say the word daddy for 20 years because... I was so afraid that I had done the wrong thing, and I was so afraid of missing him. And when he left the house, for the last time, the ambulance people, the EMS, came to get him. I went and hid in the bathroom. Mm. That Mm. still remains my favorite hiding place. Mm. (laughs) When I don't want anybody to bother me, (laughs) my wife, I go in the bathroom, I take a good book, and I enjoy myself. But that came from hiding in the bathroom and being afraid to say goodbye to my daddy before he died.
0: Mm. Isn't it funny how how we can sometimes uh, transform an experience like that? That was obviously, I'm sure, a hard experience to come to terms with. But you've transformed it into your peaceful place. uh,
3: I've tried to. I remember, I can still remember that day when my mother knocked on the bathroom door and she said, come out and say goodbye to your daddy. And I could not do it. I was Mm. in tears and all that. I just couldn't do it. Today, uh, as you say, I've tried to move past that experience to learn from it and to help other people not have to go through the same thing.
0: You know... I was I was interested in the intersection. Obviously, every leader of a religious community has to be able to support people in loss. I think because your that's part of your job. That's right. You know, uh,
3: we take care of people.
0: Exactly, and uh, I know I had a lot to do with my mother's minister in in the period before she just died, because that was. The home for all of her hard experiences. Uh, so obviously, all rabbis do that. But do you th- uh, do you think all rabbis are trained to do that, or do they have to kind of learn it by showing up for people? You obviously, uh, on purpose, trained yourself in that area.
3: You know, it's an interesting it's an interesting point because what I have learned. Uh, from the work that I have done with Jewish and non-Jewish organizations, is that most ministers, priests, and rabbis don't don't really deal with death real well. Mm. They're they're like normal people.
0: I, mean, we're all normal people. I was going to say they're just like yeah, the rest of us. People, huh?
3: you know? we, get, <laughs> we get scared. We don't want to deal with it. Listen, I remember um, forty-one years ago I was a rabbi in Grand Rapids, Michigan. That's where I began. And I got a phone call from a congregant who said, somebody died, we have to prepare the body. I said, no, we do not have to prepare the body. I'm not touching a dead body. You know, God bless you, get somebody else.
0: Ha- have a good well, time with that. I huh? did.
3: I did. I went over there and I did it. And that was my first lesson. And from that, I think I've been extraordinarily... Fortunate, I believe God gave me the gift of being able to walk with people into the valley of shadow of death and give them hope. Not every rabbi I know, not every minister I know, can do that. We didn't, we didn't learn it in rabbinical school. We learned sources about death, but we never learned about death. So, So I guess what I'm... Personally, you know, you're as afraid as anybody who's not a a clergy person.
0: What I hear there is that you're trained in the philosophy of death, but maybe not so much in the reality of death.
3: Correct. I'm not afraid to talk about it, to walk into a room in the hospital where they've just died, to... Say the final prayers before they die. To hold hands with the family, I'm not afraid. As a matter of fact, I I I joke sometimes to my congregants who are probably tired of hearing me talk about grief because I talk about it a lot because mm. it's one of my loves. So I say to them, I'd rather you know do three funerals in a day than two weddings because when you when I officiate a wedding. They're not really interested in what I have to say. I'm I'm an officer of the court at the same time, and what they want me to do, what they wait for me to do, is I now pronounce you husband and wife. (laughs) They're not interested in what I have to say to them, so I don't talk a long time to them. They don't listen. They're interested in the hors d'oeuvres. But when there's a funeral, people need to listen it's a word wisdom. And Absolutely. So and uh, they have no problem at all hearing and taking to heart. I just had a large funeral. When I mean large, I mean somebody who was really active in the congregation. And uh, the family who doesn't live in Colorado Springs anymore, they live in El Paso, uh, they were riveted by some of the things that I had to say. They came up and asked me questions about death traditions when they go back home, etc. And it's so much a deeper experience Mm-hmm. because they're ready. They need to listen. They want to know what to do. They're ready to be led.
0: That intersects with the way... Uh what I've noticed about my life as a counselor, too, that when people come in the midst of loss of whatever sort, they're, they're more present to whatever our work is. Uh, a lot has been pushed out of the way, and they're facing, their, they're facing their worst fear instead of avoiding it.
3: And it's good for them. Mm-hmm. There's nothing better than facing I, your loss experience. Nothing I believe you know when I do a wedding, as I said before, so it's a wedding finds it's happy it's wonderful but but a funeral is better in terms of learning about yourself and and experiencing raw emotions, growing and healing and I find that you know it's not just that Daddy died, it's that. We got some unfinished business, Daddy and I. I know what am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Just because he died and I say goodbye, that's all. That's the easy part. Sometimes,
0: absolutely. You know, I think this leads very naturally into uh, people's fear talking about people's fear of grieving and how that gets cultivated in our culture because you and I d- couldn't get out of it and so we learned oh it's, it's really not so bad when you let it, <laughs> let it unfold you know right. there's a lot to be gained but I think uh, people who have not experienced loss often do operate out of fear and I wonder if you could share that excerpt about uh, the way that gets reinforced uh, the, the section about the advertisers
3: sure um you may be shocked to know that I'm looking at the very portion of my book about that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you want me to read it or talk it? Whichever you prefer. Okay. Okay, <laughs> there's one paragraph in particular that sort of sums it up. It goes like this, advertisers want you to be afraid. So you'll buy their products and services, which of course are supposed to be the answers To All your fears They want you to worry that you're not in Not hip And not impressing your friends and neighbors enough Not thin enough Not pretty enough Not macho enough Not driving the right car to get you dates with supermodels Not safe enough in your home And not safe enough on the streets Not parenting well enough Not happy enough Gotta buy all those prescription antidepressants You see advertised between Dramas on TV And not feeling well enough. Got to buy all those prescription drugs you see advertised between the sitcoms. Not getting your clothes white enough or soft enough. Not getting the shiniest floor. Not looking young enough to compete in the job marketplace. Got to go get that facelift from the local plastic surgeon who advertises in my local paper on TV. Not making the earth move. Got to go get some Viagra. Not going to keep your husband's affections. Got to go get some Botox for those wrinkles. And not even going to have a future. Better vote for inst or insert candidate of your choice, or we're all going to die. So it's all fear. And I'll tell you a funny story. So a few weeks ago, I lost my iPhone. I had an iPhone Horror. 5. And it was fine. There was nothing wrong with it. I just lost it. And I made calls to all kinds of restaurants that we'd been in, asking if I'd left it there. And I looked all over the house and felt silly, a little stupid because I'd lost a phone, right? So then I started getting nervous. Um, There was a little fear involved because then I said, okay, so God is giving me a message. It's time to get a new iPhone. Well, now i got a problem. Which iPhone am I going to get? Uh Uh-oh. Am I going to get a new iPhone 5 that's just like the one I lost? Or am I going to get an iPhone 6? Because it's better. (laughs) It's better. It's like a millimicrometer of an inch wider and taller. It's not like it's another dimension. But I get sucked in by you know, buy all the Apple advertisements for the new iPhone 6. Then I had to decide, was I going to get the iPhone 6 or the iPhone 6 Plus? The really giant one. And and what went through my mind, I still remember laughing about it. I can't walk around with an iPhone 5. I'm a loser if I do that. i got to have the best. So... Uh, I wasn't afraid, but I wanted to have the best. So I went and bought an iPhone 6. That was a week before the restaurant called me and told me they had my phone. but (laughs) And they said, how come we waited so long? I didn't go into it because I would have yelled at them. (laughs) You know, it cost me a couple hundred dollars, but hey, what's a couple hundred dollars? When you're facing fear of having a loser iPhone, my God. So
0: uh, a small example like of, a, of a big thing.
3: Yeah, right. That's correct.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, we, we're trained
3: we're trained to uh, think that we need to have bigger and better. And if we don't, there's something wrong with us, and people will talk about us badly, and that's the worst. If you were an announce to a party that you are already. People are going to talk about you. You don't want to get talked about. It's embarrassing. So you go out and you buy a new dress. It,
0: you go out and buy it new re- shoes. It reminds me of that study where uh, they asked people what scared them the most. Right. Death was number six. Number one was public speaking. Right. <laughs> you know. Okay. The same thing. We, we do fear uh, how we're going to look. Uh, and that makes it hard to connect with ourselves, doesn't it? Well, and we're,
3: we we sort of depend on the reactions of others. Yes, we're but, validated by the actions of, by the response of others, and we worry about these things without remembering the wisdom that at the end of the day, other people really don't care that much about your problems, your dress
0: your phone, your car, they really don't care that much. That's a great place to go to our break. Uh, when, when we come back, I'd like to talk a little more deeply about the losses that resulted in you, in you facing all this and making a life career of it. And listeners, in these few minutes, be sure to go to my host page, goodgriefatvoiceamerica.com, or my website, www.weatheringgrief.com, to, for links to all my social media. You can email me from either place. And to find Rabbi Glazer, go to griefok.com.
1: your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness if you think you've seen online tv before Real Life Solutions. Voice America Health and Wellness.
2: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief.
0: Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and we're talking with Rabbi Melvin Glazer today, whose book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, offers a roadmap for healing the soul after loss. You know, you mentioned briefly that, that uh, your father died when you were not quite 12, the thing that really stood out to me about the way you talked about that in the book is that you, first of all, put it away for a long time uh, and then had to open it back up in order to find your way with it. And that seems so important because, um, of course, I I have clients many times who have uh, put away a loss for a long time and finally are, are uh, looking at it. But there's also this sort of feeling, you know, once a certain amount of time goes by, it's supposed to be over, which uh, I feel you putting that out helps people know it's not, you know, <laughs> it, it's uh, something you interact with for a long time. And I wonder if you could talk about the period of time before you decided to, I guess, deal with that, heal from it, however you want to put it.
3: I would, and, and I'll, I'll do it by telling you another story. When I was 16, my rabbi wanted to send me to a uh, yeshiva where I would learn advanced Jewish studies. Because he saw that I was really wasting my time in his religious school. So he wanted to send me somewhere. So he made calls all over the country. And because I was at um, this Jewish summer camp at, in, in the Poconos in Pennsylvania, so he found a school in Philadelphia. And he got a hold of the school director and said, I want Melvin to go to your school and I'll pay for it. And he did. Mm. He paid all the bills, paid everything. Wow. And so, yeah, it was wonderful. And um, there's a PS to that, which I'll get to in a minute. So what happened in terms of loss experience was I got a letter from my mother. May she rest in peace. The seventh week of camp in 19, I don't remember when. And uh, I was entering 11th. I was entering 10th grade was 16, and the letter said, uh, it was special delivery letter, so naturally, being Jewish, I figured somebody died,
4: because mm-hmm.
3: that's how we think. He had a special delivery letter, not say how are you, how's the food at camp, but,
2: you know, and Ida
3: just died. So, the letter said, Rabbi Epstein wants to send you to this uh, religious day school, Philadelphia, and if you're interested... You know, you'll live with a family. We're not all moving. You're gonna, you'll go by yourself. You'll find, we'll find your family to live with. And if you're interested, you have to decide by tomorrow. Mm. Oh my goodness! Yeah, exactly. That's how I felt. So, because she said you have to leave camp early, you have to take entrance exams. Uh, we have to find a place to live, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, and please call me tomorrow, love, Mom. And I'm thinking, oh my!
0: Yeah, <laughs> That's it's a lot hard. to bite on. Wasn't
3: that hard. Hard. <laughs> hard? Because of the 200 campers in that camp, 85 uh, percent of them went to this day school. Of the 20 campers in my bunk, 18 went to this day school. This was my prime community, mm. not the community that I had come from in Atlanta. But my summer community, uh, that, that, they were my real friends. So it took me about 30 seconds to, uh, to say, yeah, I want to do that. And what 16-year-old doesn't want to leave his mother? You know?
0: <laughs> so, yes, I have experienced that period of exactly. life. exactly <laughs>
3: <laughs> On both so, ends. To make a long story, maybe longer, I don't know. So I went to, a, I went to this day school for three years, I lived with two families, had a wonderful time. Then the time came for college. So college, I decided I was going to go to a joint uh, program between Columbia University in New York City and the Jewish Theological Seminary, which is where I ultimately got ordained. They have a bachelor's program, a, do- a joint program, where you take courses at both places, and they both accept, you work out your program so that Columbia accepts seminary courses and Seminary accepts Columbia's courses, Mm -hmm. okay? You end up, after four years, with two bachelor's degrees. Well, Rabbi Epstein paid for college for me. He paid for tuition. He paid for the dorm. He paid for food. He even gave me $25 a week spending money because he said, Melvin has to meet a nice girl. So I'm truly blessed. and I What a,
0: what see, a, I, what a uh, incredible I thing know. happened to you.
3: I'm blessed. And I, I consider that all the work that I've done for the last 41 years as a rabbi and grief therapist is really a giving back to my rabbi for what he gave me. I was a son he never had. He was a spiritual father I didn't ever have. And it worked out. He lived to be 101 years old. Wow. And um, um, I'll tell you one final story for now. Um, well, he lived to be 100. And, and, and I went to see him uh, in his 100th year with my uh, one of my sons, who is now also an ordained rabbi. And Rabbi Epstein looked at my son... And said, you know, training your father has been one of the most important things I've ever done in my career. He'd been a rabbi 50-something years in one synagogue. So when he got to the 100, the um, congregation put on a party at the synagogue in his honor. Uh, he was too sick by then to attend. So they videoed the evening, and then his best friends, the couple that he spent most of his time with, took the video, went over to his house, he was lying in bed, he, uh, and they watched the video together, and then the friends said goodnight, and they left, and that night, my rabbi died. That's the best death I've ever experienced.
0: That's amazing and profound. It is so
3: moving and spiritual and whatever else you want to call it. You know, the guy that, that gave me everything had the best death that you could possibly imagine. I'll take it. Wouldn't you?
0: I, I absolutely would. I, it, uh, as you know, my mom just died and it was pretty great. Yes. But, uh, you know, her, her death was a great death. And we all are going to have one. Um, I, I, think, I think I have great hopes of having, uh, you know, a, a death that has meaning for me and the people around me. Right. And um, that, not only would that have meaning for your rabbi, but all the people he intersected with.
3: Absolutely. Uh,
0: imagine to have been one of the people at that party. Yep. <laughs> As you were, you don't have to imagine, but right. I can imagine how um, how deeply moving that would be.
3: He was so peaceful, you know. It was he was so spiritual and so moving and so peaceful, and he, and he didn't suffer at all. Um, and he just died, and he died knowing how loved he was. Yes. Now you can't beat that There's nothing you cannot
0: there. that's it and and I do feel that if people know their death is coming, uh obviously this doesn't apply necessarily to sudden death, but if people know their death is coming, there is a sense in which it's pretty likely that towards the end, love is the thing that matters most, correct, so he, he got society, to he got to have that.
3: Yeah, our society is more tuned into that now than we ever have been before, because our society now understands that death is a life cycle event, and it's filled with meaning if you want it to be, and you can heal your wounds with your family, and you can finish up your unfinished business, and you can tell the people that you haven't talked to for 20 years, I don't remember what it was. But I forgive you and I apologize to you. Mm-hmm. And thank you for what you've given me and I love you. We understand that better, I think. Because it happens much more often than it used to.
0: We're, I think that's... Uh, I'm, I'm considered a, uh, quite an optimist by the people in my life. I have a little less optimism than you on that. I think it is changing. But I still encounter so many people who who don't want to uh, don't want to interact with death. No, uh, well, yeah, but we're, but we're, I'm we're I'm glad it is of. changing. I'm glad it is changing because I I certainly can see that. But I sometimes wonder if my view is a little skewed by what I do.
3: <laughs> well, maybe. I mean, listen, you and I have the. I don't want to call it power, but that's what it is, to lead families to get to where they need to get to. When I go into a hospital room, and I know, and I've been in touch with a family, you know, for weeks and months during the final illness and all that. So when the time comes that, you know, um, death is imminent, okay, and uh, the daddy may not even be conscious anymore, so I'll go to the hospital room, and, and all the kids are there. And they're all, I get them to hold hands, and I say, I have an exercise for you to do. You must do this before your father dies. You must forgive him for whatever it was that you need to forgive him for. And you need to apologize to him for whatever it is you need to apologize for. Then you need to thank him, and then you need to say goodbye. And I love you. Now, what happens if they don't love him? That's a different story.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But then then they may not be in the room.
3: That's true, right? Correct.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: Who knows? I mean, death is the ultimate mystery. We don't know. No. We have no idea. We don't know what death is, really. I mean, we know physically the body stops working. The parts stop working. But spiritually... Psychically, we have no clue what that is. How aware of you are you of your dying when you're dying at the very end? I don't know. So everybody has
0: their own theories because nobody knows. So everybody's right. And you it know? may not be the same for different people with That's different right. beliefs. That's
3: right. Uh, I've begun the- to teach about um, what
0: happens to your soul
3: after you die. So I say there's two two different opinions. One is what you and I and everybody else learned in Sunday school growing up, and that is there's a physical place called heaven. There's a physical place called hell. If you're a good little girl, Cheryl, then when you die, you'll go to heaven, and you'll be with God, Jesus, whoever you believe in. If you're a bad little girl, you're going to hell. It's hot. It's no air conditioning. You have to pay taxes. You have to go to school still, more. It's horrible. (laughs) And you're stuck with people that you can't stand, and you're there forever. That's one way of looking at it. There's another more poetic way of looking at it, which I believe personally. And I say every action in your life creates memories. So when I die, people are going to remember Mel Glazer one of two ways. Either he was a good, loving Compassionate, just, friendly, humorous teacher, who gave back to the world, or he was somebody who only cared about himself, didn't care a whit about anybody else, didn't give any money to charity or time, or care about other people. If you if they remember me the first way, that's heaven. If they remember me the second way, that's hell. Mm-hmm. To put it much simpler. Adolf Hitler is in hell. Mother Teresa is in heaven, and I don't need a physical place to know that. Doesn't matter. However, if you believe that you're going back to be with your great grandparents, you're right. Because <laughs> to me, it's about comfort, not truth. There's yeah, no truth. We have no idea.
0: You know, so, before we go to another believe, break. I'm, go ahead. Uh, whatever you believe is right for you. For you. For you. Would you, would you share, uh, we only have a couple minutes before the break, would you share uh, the, the little section that starts, we are not guaranteed a long life? Sure.
3: Let me find it. I got it. We're not guaranteed a long life. So we have to get over the idea that death before a certain age is unnatural. You have to literally grieve this idea, because if you're hanging on to it, you can't heal and recover from your losses. If you have the idea that someone died prematurely and can't get past that concept, then you're just adding to your list of things you have to mourn and let go of. It's hard enough to mourn the person you lost, let alone be saddled with the extra grief you feel regarding what you perceive as the unfairness of the death's timing and circumstances. You know when that comes through the most? When a baby dies. For sure. But the thing I was thinking... Oh my God, it's the worst death possible.
0: However, what I was thinking about relative to what we were just talking about is I've heard people mourning death at any age. Saying he or she died too soon
3: right
0: uh, including eighty ninety year old people mm-hmm. and and I just think it it puts it in perspective there there isn't a too soon there's death, and obviously, there are differences when a baby dies or a young adult dies, a difference in grief and a difference in our experience, but right. too soon is something I'm not sure I can really. Go along with. Well, when somebody, if
3: an 80-year-old dies and the daughter says she died too soon, I interpret that just to mean I'm really hurting
0: now. Exactly. Too soon for me. I'm not ready. I don't
3: want to deal with too soon because that goes nowhere.
0: Yeah. Because then I get
3: cynical. Well, how long did you really (laughs) want her to live?
0: Right. So we're going to go to a break now. If you want to find more about Melvin Glazer and his work and his book, please go to griefok.com. We'll be back in a few minutes.
1: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
4: Real Life
1: Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness.
2: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now back to Good Grief.
0: Welcome back to Good Grief. Rabbi Melvin Glazer is with me today talking about his book, A GPS for Grieving and Healing and Other Subjects of, of Grief and Loss. And Mel, near the beginning of your book, um, I was smiling because you basically sort of jumped to the end or the punchline, some might say. Um, it, it, within a few pages, really, you shared Glazer's first and only law of life. Would you read that for people?
3: Sure. By the way, I've never heard it called a punchline before.
0: <laughs> no, but it's it wasn't funny, but, there, but because I'm you are, that kind of popped to my head. <laughs>
3: I'm going to use that. <laughs> Or as we say, that'll preach. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Throughout my years studying, teaching, lecturing, writing, and counseling in the areas of dying, death, and the grieving process, not only as a rabbi, but in the interfaith community and as a certified grief recovery specialist, I have come to this one startlingly simple conclusion that I call Glazer's first and only law of life. We only learn anything about ourselves by how we respond to loss. Grief, therefore, can be a dynamic opportunity to learn and to grow. I still believe that.
0: And and it's interesting because I spent some time with that when I read it. I, I suppose we could also call it a bottom line instead of a punchline. But, um, you know, I was thinking, no. We we learn from finding the right partner or having a child. You know, I was thinking of all these positive events, but the part of those events that teaches us is the hard part that teaches us about ourselves. And so I ended up basically agreeing with you that um, you know sometimes I'll I'll have a, a client who's single and then gets in a very good relationship and within a short time, they're facing up to all kinds of things about themselves because otherwise they can't stay in it the way they want to, you know. Yep. And I, th- I think that does relate to, to loss in a way. Those, those hard places in us relate to loss.
3: And, and when we do something that brings us joy, whether it's celebrate a special birthday or anniversary or find that partner that we think God has been saving for us until we find out that that may not be true. But it's, you're right, it's the hard times that come with. So, uh, you know, I talk a lot about where do you learn the most about yourself mm-hmm. when you celebrate your 10th anniversary? And all your friends come over and give you gifts and, and hug and kiss you. Or when daddy dies, where do you, which one of those teaches you more by yourself? I'm convinced. It's not even close for me. It's death. Because then you've got to really go inside. And you, you can't get out of it. Of. <laughs> right, you can't get out yeah. of it. That's right. can't get out of it. Well, you can. I did for twenty years, when Daddy died. But um, eventually, you can't get out of it.
0: Eventually, that's but a good a, either, a good additional word. It, either end up coming to see me or you. So I have a a big philosophical question here, which is, um, since I, I recognize the truth in what you're saying that. Hard things grow us. How yeah. do you imagine we, as a culture, developed such an aversion to grief and to facing death? You know, it's as if we haven't learned from our experience on that. Uh, and and I do agree it's it's starting to uh, it's starting to melt a bit, but there's still a lot of of um, aversion. I I just wonder how that would have come about. I think...
3: uh, I like to think about those big questions, too. And I, I think, regarding this, I think it has to do with... In your mind, you know you have to move forward. But in your heart, you don't want to move forward. You want to move backward. I talk about wandering in my books... A lot. Mm. It's like the Egyptian. It's like the Israelites of old after the, after we left Egypt. So in the Torah, in the in the Bible, we spent a lot of time complaining to Moses about it's so bad in the desert. Take us back to Egypt. So you got to ask yourself the question: Why would anybody want to go back and be a slave in Egypt? Mm. And the answer is easy for me because they knew the territory in Egypt.
0: Yes, I'd rather, I'd rather have a, uh, a, a familiar bad
3: That's right.
0: than an unknown maybe.
3: The devil you know is better, than, is easier than the devil you don't know. So what happens is that we wander in two directions at the same time. We want mama back the way she was. So we want to wander backwards. But we know, and we know, we're going to have to wander forwards because we know We just know something. Something tells us that our life has to change. We can't stay the same, and so we have to wander forwards. And so we're stuck. We're wandering. I claim that the the when when you're um, when you feel like you want to wander forward more than you want to wander backward, a healing has really begun for you. Because mm. then you know where you where you really want to go. Prisoners are the same way. A lot of prisoners get out of jail; they don't know what to do with freedom, so they commit a crime and they go back to jail. That they know. Sure. So we're, I believe, that we're averse, a lot of us, to dealing with grief. First of all, because we don't know how to deal with it. Nobody ever taught us. Nobody ever taught us. Yes. People taught us how to. Acquire friends, buy cars, have more in our lives, but nobody ever taught us how to have less. What do you do? That's why most people's desks are disasters because we don't want to <laughs> throw anything away. The <laughs> Somewhat we guilty away, we don't over
0: need
3: here. It. Need <laughs> <it>. So society <laughs> uh-huh. is averse to dealing with grief because a) we don't know how, b). Society teaches us the wrong things to say when somebody dies. Most importantly, we don't forward. We want to stay right where we are because we think mistakenly that it's easier.
0: Yes, and I, and I don't think that's necessarily true everywhere in the world. Are you there? I'm here. Oh, do you think do have you encountered places I've I've encountered a few places where there's much more welcoming of the feelings that come with loss than we have here in the US. Have you had that experience? Uh, I
3: I I spent a lot of time in Israel. Visited five or six times. In Israel, they're more comfortable with death because Every soldier that dies is related to half the country. Mm. And so it's family. And I think that's part of the key. In America, I don't even know who my neighbor is. We don't have what our grandparents used to have. You know, families don't live together. I remember the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Mm Okay? Okay where the kids lived two doors away from their parents. Well, that's the way it used to be in Europe, and that's the way it used to be when they all came to America. And families lived together, sometimes in the same homes, sometimes next door, sometimes a block away. You didn't have to get on a plane to go visit somebody. And so there was a sense of community which strengthened people. And from the grandparents... You got wisdom. I remember my grandmother who died in her 90s. You know, when when one of her children, she had 12 children who all grew to be adults. When one of them died, she took it the best of anybody because she'd, she'd seen everything. Mm-hmm. And she understood people die. That's it. The secret is you didn't die. That's the secret that most people, what I call a deep, dark, dirty secret of grief. You didn't die. Yes. You might have died, but you didn't die. So, you don't get on with it. Sometimes, when I get cynical, I want to say to people, look, the sun's coming up tomorrow morning. It doesn't matter who died tonight. It's irrelevant who died. The world goes on. That's the way the world is. So you only have, you know, one choice to make. You want to move ahead, or you want to move back. It's up to you. I can't help them. I can help them, but I can't make their decisions. They and it's such
0: an it's do. such an it's such an interesting paradox. I think we're talking about because on the one hand, it's so critically important to feel all that you feel. Right. To to actually live the grief is is very uh elemental yes and yet at the very same time recognizing it's just the normal course of things right uh those two things are often quite paradoxical to put together i i'm thinking about this a lot because i accept death as a reality and i'm still grieving for my mother Right. You know, I'm an orphan now. Uh, that yeah. changes my whole conception of, of my life. And a lot of it is wonderful. Some of it is very wandering and hard. Um, so the two do go together, but they, they seem paradoxical.
3: It may be that the why me part of it is when we were born... We were the centers of our parents' universe. All we had to do was cry, and the world came to us. So, what lesson did we learn? I am the center of the universe. Mm. It exists for my sake. Or, actually, we know that's not true. But, or actually, it doesn't mean anything. It's how we feel. And so, that part of us—the I am the center of the universe you know, doesn't, part of it doesn't go away. So when your mother dies, or my father dies, I want to know, why did God do this to me? We blame the doctors who operated on them. We say they made a mistake. They clipped an, uh, an artery. Problem was, the doctor was a family friend. So what are you going to do? No so, way hey, out you're stuck. you can there's no place you can go with that, so we just moved past it. but we felt like somebody it was somebody's fault. Daddy didn't just die, it was somebody's fault, and that feeling remains
0: i Got I know there, what you're talking you know? about and and also for me, there's another aspect which is in a way uh feeling all the feelings I'm having about the loss because uh, I'm not I'm not actually thinking how why me uh, that hasn't been the way I've experienced it maybe because her death was right it had a sense of rightness but what I am thinking is that relationship was very important to me and and it, it would be very odd if I didn't feel the absence of it. Yeah, <laughs> you know that there's just something so very normal to me about that, and and it's an honoring too, isn't it? Sure. Uh, it is. No matter when you come to say, "Oh, yes, this loss really mattered to me," then you've honored that that relationship in a way.
3: Correct, because if it didn't matter, you wouldn't care. Yes. Well, let me ask you well, today. Are you an only well, are, child?
0: No, I have a brother. So we're okay. going through it together. Guess what? Our hour is up. I'm I know. S- I'm so thankful for you being with me today. I've enjoyed it. It wasn't nearly you, long enough. Too. And and I hope my listeners out there will go find you at griefok.com. Uh, Next week, please join me when I'll be speaking with Elaine Mansfield, whose beautiful book, Leaning into Love, A Spiritual Journey Through Grief, chronicles the loss of her husband. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
2: Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief.